The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. Two stories, two pilots. True stories. February 24th, 1989, United Airlines Flight 811 took off from Honolulu on its way to New Zealand. The 747, it climbed to 22,000 feet when the forward cargo door blew open, tearing a huge hole in the side of the plane. Nine passengers were instantly sucked out of the plane to their deaths. That's usually why I never take off my seatbelt in a plane. Uh, The two right engines were damaged by flying debris and taken out of commission. The plane was 100 miles from land. Their captain, David Cronin, brought all his wisdom and 38 years of piloting experience to bear. Here's what happened. To compensate for the lack of thrust from the two engines, he struggled to take hold of the control column steady with his hands while using his feet to put pressure on the control floor rudder to stabilize the plane. His stickiest problem, however, was deciding how fast to fly. He slowed the plane as close to the stall speed as possible by keeping the air rushing over the plane from further widening the hole in the fuselage. Because the hole had changed the aerodynamics of the huge craft, the usual data regarding stall speed was no longer relevant. The pilot, knowing this, he had to use his best judgment. <laughs> Furthermore, since the plane had taken on 300,000 pounds of fuel for the long flight, it was too heavy to land without collapsing the landing gear. Thus, he encountered a new problem. The wing flaps used to slow down the plane were not working properly. He'd have to land the plane at 195 miles per hour compared to the normal speed of 170 miles per hour. The jet weighed 610,000 pounds, well above Boeing's recommended maximum stress load of 564,000 pounds. I mean, can you say, Houston, we've got a problem? Nevertheless, Captain Cronin made one of the smoothest landings the rest of the crew could remember amidst the cheers of the passengers. Airline experts called the landing miraculous. A few days after the harrowing experience, an interview asked Captain Cronin about his first thought following the loss of the cargo door. He said, I said a prayer for my passengers momentarily and then got back to business. Second story, 2004, American Airlines Flight 34 from LAX to JFK, LA to New York. The pilot of the plane before taking off said across the, with, uh, with the mic, you know, they say that half of Americans are Christians. I'd like, just like the Christians on board to raise their hands. In the sudden hushed coach section of the airplane, a few nervous passengers raised one hand, most no higher than shoulder level, none above the top of the seats. Then he said, I want everybody else on board to look around at how crazy these people are, the Christians, and to make good use of the flight by talking to them during the flight. Or you could talk to me after the flight. Now, simple question. Who would you rather have as your pilot if you were going on a flight tomorrow? How many would choose A, and how many would you choose B? I think the answer is pretty obvious. Who do you think best loved their neighbor? If you ask the passengers on either plane, I think the answer would be obvious because the flight attendants had to clean up the mess because everybody started ringing the alarms on the second one. Did he, did he just say that? What did he say? 
Is there going to be a problem on the plane? What's going on? And then the poor Christians have to defend the, the pilot now because now they're now on display because the pilot lacked the tact to know when is it time to evangelize and when is it time to do your job. The title of the message is Loving Your Neighbor, and yet this is a message on work. How do we love our neighbor through our work? It's an important question because most of us will spend about 100,000 hours in a lifetime working. If you start at age 18 and you end somewhere around 65 or 70, you're going to be working a lot. And so the good news is the Bible has a lot to say about this, and so should the church. So let's get back to the beginning and see what God says about work. In Genesis chapter 1, Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then we see in chapter 2, verses 15 to 19. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You must surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you shall eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature... That was its name. You see, Adam was a farmer, he was a botanist, and he was a scientist in Eden. I guess maybe you could argue as a zookeeper, but they weren't going anywhere. They're in paradise. And one of the main points here that I want you to just be reminded of, as Brute Walke succinctly puts it in one of the quotes at the beginning of the bulletin, that work is a gift of God, not a punishment for sin. Work is a gift of God. This is just the opposite of how we're often inclined to think. For example, Time Magazine, some years ago, Lance Morrow wrote this article and he said this, when God foreclosed on Eden, he condemned Adam and Eve to go to work. From the beginning, the Lord's word said that work was something bad, a punishment, the great stone of mortality and toil laid upon a human spirit and might otherwise soar in the infinite weightless playfulness of grace. That is dead wrong. You see, and so often our Christian worldview, we we just instantly jump to the fall. You know, I mean, even with our membership questions, when you join the church and some of you just joined, the very first question is, is what? Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner, you know, in the sight of God, you know? And, you know, justly deserving his wrath, saving his sovereign mercy. That's where we start. Wouldn't it be better to say, 
do you, do you acknowledge that God is good and he created everything good and he's gonna restore everything to be good? Then do you acknowledge yourself, you know? <laughs> that we blunt. But the, the, it starts with God made everything good. This is before sin ever came into the world. Man is working and God gave these gifts of a wife, of marriage, the institution of marriage, the institution of work, and also an institution of the Sabbath, of rest. Six days you shall work, and on the seventh day, cease is the word in Hebrew. Sabbath, and that means cease. Shut it down. And so there's a rhythm that God has set up because we're image bearers. God rested on the seventh day, and he made us in his image. Six days to work and then to rest. And so I just want to look through this worldview of creation, fall, redemption, glory, because that, as a Christian, we think, okay, how does work look in creation? How does work look in the fall? How does work look now redeemed in Christ? And what's work going to look like in heaven? We're not going to be sitting on a harp playing you know, on a cloud somewhere. That is far from reality. And so, first of all, at creation, as we just read these verses, man is set apart. He is given a job description or an office. In other words, while the plant, this is Derek Kidner, I'm quoting him, great commentator. He says, while the plants and animals are simply to team and reproduce, only humans are given a job description. They are called to subdue and take dominion or rule the earth. Eden was to be cultivated. Adam was called to cultivate the garden. One of the, I read two books this week, reread Every Good Endeavor. I highly recommend this book by Tim Keller and this new book by Dan Doriani on work, its purpose, dignity, and transformation. He's a professor at Covenant Seminary. Both great works, but I'm gonna be quoting more from this one this morning. But he says this, Tim Keller says about Adam and Eve cultivating the garden. He says, we're not to relate to the world as park rangers, whose job it is not to change their space, but to preserve things as they are nor are we to pave over the garden of the created world to make it a parking lot. No, we're to be gardeners who take an active stance towards their, their charge. They do not leave the land as it is. They rearrange it in order to make it most fruitful, to draw the potentialities for growth and the development out of the soil. They dig up the ground and rearrange it with a goal in mind, to rearrange the raw material of the garden so that it produces food and flowers and beauty. And that is the pattern for work. It's creative and assertive. It's rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and in, so that people in particular can thrive and flourish. As image bearers of God, we will always work. We worked before there was sin. We continue to work after Adam and Eve sinned and now everything is, we'll get to that in a minute of the fall. And so now work isn't just fulfilling it's often frustrating. And some of you did reply to my email this week and shared some of your frustration of work. We continue to work after we become Christians, but now we have a new boss. We work for Jesus in his glory and for the good of others. And we will certainly work in the new heavens and new earth, and our, our work will be a lot like Adam and Eve's work in the garden before they ever sinned. It will be good work. We work as image bearers of God. Tim Keller says the naming of the animals in chapter two, verse 19 and 20, which I just read, is an invitation to enter into his creativity. Why didn't God just name the animals himself? I mean, he, he called the day, 
day and he called the, you know, the light day and the, and the darkness night. So he's certainly capable of naming, is he not? But he says he invites us to continue his work of developing creation, develop all the capacities of the human and physical nature to build a civilization that glorifies him. Through our work, we bring order out of chaos, create new entities, explore the patterns of creation and interweave uh, the human co community. So whether splicing a gene or doing brain surgery or collecting the rubbish or painting a picture, one, one's work further develops, maintains, and repairs the fabric of the world. In this way, we connect our work to God's work. Jesus said, when he healed somebody on the Sabbath and they were upset, he said, my father is always at work to this very t day and I too am working. So if you think work is innately bad or evil, what did you just make God the Father and God the Son? <laughs> if God is always working and Jesus is working. Work is good, right? Work, Dorothy Sayers defines work as the gracious expression of creative energy in the service of others. Let me say that again. Work is the gracious expression of creative energy in the service of others. Or John Stopp put it like this, work is the expenditure of energy, mutual or mental or both, in the service of others, which brings fulfillment to the worker, benefit to the community, and glory to God. And so God gives us different vocations. And, different, and that's just the, the word vocation, just the Latin word for calling. And so how does God usually protect you? Well, that would be through the vocation of a police officer, a security guard, and a fireman. And how does God usually teach us? Through the vocation of a teacher. Without teachers, we wouldn't be able to read God's word. And how does God usually heal us? Through the vocation of a doctor, a nurse, pharmacist, lab tech, dentist, and on and on. And how does God often let us see our friends, our families, and our church members? Well, that would be through the vocations of auto workers, traffic engineers, road crews, oil drillers, 18-wheel tank drivers, car manufacturers, air, air traffic controllers, pilots, mechanics, I mean, on and on. And how does God usually let us experience beauty and entertainment? Through the vocations of the arts, through music, drama. And how does God usually feed us? How does he feed my children? Through the vocation of the farmer. You see, the idea is, is Martin Luther said, God doesn't need our good works, but your neighbor does. So work is good, but something happened. And when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, you remember the curse, and the, and the curse affected both marriage and work. And it's gonna be tough, and it's not just gonna be fulfilling, it's gonna be frustrating. And God said to Adam in Genesis 3, if you look over on the next page in the scriptures, Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, he says to Adam, because you've listened to the, vo the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so now we live in this, not just fulfillment, but frustration of finding the curse that nobody has an, an easy job. Does anybody really have a gravy job? If, if, come see me afterwards. If you found a job where there isn't stress and isn't things that are frustrating, 
because there's all kinds of is distortions and sin has affected and infected our work and our workplace. And so instead of worshiping while we work, one of the problems is was we now want to worship our work. And we, we have this issue with incredible job dissatisfaction, incredible amounts of unproductive hours, laziness, distraction, corruption, bosses and supervisors that make life very difficult. According to the book, The Day America Tells the Truth, only 10% of Americans say they are satisfied with their jobs. That's pretty low. For the overwhelming majority, work is dull and meaningless. Further, only one in four gives their employers their best effort, and workers waste about 20% of an average work week. We now live in a world system that is illustrated in Scripture and runs throughout Scripture of the Tower of Babel, and then it's referred to in Scripture as Babylon. And we are told that we are now exiles in Babylon. The idea is that, you know, now we're aliens and strangers in First Peter, writing to God's people, and we're no longer in literal Babylon, we're in a spiritual Babylon, where Babylon is a world system. And Babel is the idea, the Tower of Babel is we're going to go and make a name for ourselves. So we're going to work, but it's going to be about us and getting a name for ourselves. And Babylon is this world system that's greedy to make money and always wants more. And that's where you're living, in case you didn't know. You're living in Babel and Babylon. We're all, right, that's where we're at. We're aliens and strangers. And Homer Simpson once said to his boss, Mr. Burns, you're the richest man I know. To which Mr. Burns, wealthy Mr. Burns replied, yes, but I trade it all for more. (laughs) You see, when billionaire Bill Gates was asked why he didn't believe in God, you know what he said? He said, just in terms of allocation of time resources, religion is not very efficient. There's a lot more I could be doing on a Sunday morning. That is a Babylon worldview preaching its gospel. Because we are in the gospel of efficiency. That's the gospel of Babylon. And that's what some of you guys were emailing you about. Is you're in a system that's so concerned about efficiency that it doesn't care about people. And people are getting run down and used. Well, it's been going on for a long time. And what happens in this efficiency is we're required to do more and more. And we can never get away with it. And now you can, you can be mobile and you can work at home. In translation, you can work all the time. There's a cartoon strip some years ago of a man and a woman. They're lying on a sunny beach and she's reading a book and he's busy typing away on his laptop and the caption above him and his laptop is, I'm not a workaholic, I just work to relax. That's scary because we can do that. You see, work has become an idol and then it becomes a disordered love and out of balance with the rest of life. And isn't it interesting to note how there's been a huge environment change in TV shows? So think about this. What what do these TV shows all have in common? Now, this is a stereotype. I mean, there was Emergency 51 back in the day, okay? That was about work. But what do these shows have in common? Leave it to Beaver, Family Ties, Happy Days, Father Knows Best, The Cosby Show, All in the Family, Eight is Enough, The Wonder Years, My Three Sons, The Waltons, The Brady Bunch, The Simpsons, and Everybody Loves Raymond. What do they all have in, in common? Where is the set? The family. 
It's all about the family. Now, you still have a few of those. There is This Is Us. There's a few of those. But today, now the main shows that are really popular are The Office, Parks and Rec, Parks and Recreation, 30 Rock, NCIS, Grey's Anatomy, Chicago Fire, Chicago Med, Chicago PD, The West Wing, The Apprentice, Madam Secretary, Blue Bloods, Undercover Boss, or even all the cooking shows or flipping housing shows. Where is the environment? The environment is what? It's about work. They don't care about family anymore. That's not exciting. That's not what we want to think about. We want to get you to think about how to be better, how to work, and, you know, the dynamics at work. And let's, let's, it's like if you haven't had enough, you can come home and turn it on when you get home. The environment's changed. We live in Babel. We live in Babylon. And our callings here, here's what something we're kind of wrestling with, is we live it, it's more dirty energy rather than clean energy, meaning it's like coal instead of solar panels and wind turbines, so to speak. And what I mean by that is Dorothy Sayers put it like this. As we live out our callings, she said, doctors practice medicine, not primarily to, this is in a fallen world, okay? And hopefully this isn't the case for believers, but doctors practice medicine, not primarily to relieve suffering, but to make a living. The cure of the patient is something that happens along the way. Lawyers accept briefs, not because they have a passion for justice, but because the lawless profession that enables them to live. People still get helped along the way, but now it's dirty energy rather than clean energy, where people are still getting helped, but the concern is more about loving ourselves and making a name for ourselves and making money for ourselves and loving ourselves than loving people. And the title of this message is what? Is loving your neighbor through your work so that we are going against the Babylon and against the the system. And some of you are frustrated as you email me because you work for the government and there's, there's a lot of red tape, a lot of bureaucracy, and sometimes this can be acutely frustrating. Let me just remind you, there are a lot of government workers in the Bible. Joseph worked for the gov, and he had a pretty sweet job as the prime minister. Daniel worked for the gov, Do you remember Daniel? We should go read that again. His employees tried to kill him through a mass conspiracy. That was a tough life as a government worker. He had to spend a a night in the lion's den last time I remember. Esther worked for the gov. Do you remember how, how things went for her? She worked for the gov, and one of her co-workers plotted genocide and to kill off her entire race. She dealt with some serious racism and anti-Semitism as a government worker. Nehemiah worked for the Gov, and he dealt with some serious liars and enemies that tried to halt the progress and taunted him and tormented him at every turn. You got some difficult co-workers? Read Nehemiah 4 today. Read it this afternoon. That really helped me one time, dealing with a co-worker. Nehemiah 4. There are some great principles of how do I live with difficult people in the workplace. Another problem has been the church. Martin Luther wrote a tract in 1520 called To the Christian Nobility of the German Nature, German Nation. And in it, one of the issues that he addressed was this sacred-secular dichotomy. 
And it's this idea, you know, if I become a Christian, well, then I need to quit what I'm doing and get into real work and do Christian ministry and go be, you know, and I can be like that pilot that I can just tell everybody about Jesus on the intercom and no longer fly the plane. Not good. Here's what he says. This was a bombshell when he said this. He said, it is pure invention that Pope bishops, priests, and monks are to be called the spiritual estate, while princes, lords, artisans, and farmers are called the temporal estate. That is indeed a fine bit of lying and hypocrisy, yet no one should be frightened by it, and for this reason, that all Christians are truly of the spiritual estate, and there is among them no difference at all but that of, but that of office. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, we're all one body, yet every member has its own work, whereby we serve each other. He, he really blasted that. Well, the good news is Gene V summarized Luther's work in one of his books. He said, the priesthood of all believers did not make everyone into church workers. Rather, it turned every kind of work into sacred calling. You have a sacred calling. You that think your work is meaningless. This brings us to redemption. You see, the biggest problem with our work as Bruce Walke points out, is that man's natural relationship to the ground, to rule over it, got reversed at the fall. Instead of the ground submitting to him, it, it, it resists and eventually swallows him. And much of Solomon's frustration in the book of Ecclesiastes related to toil is that we're gonna die. And all that we've worked for goes to someone else, and we're not even gonna be remembered. Death is for real, and it's always inconvenient. And man not, knows not when he's, his time and when the fish is gonna get caught in the net, and it can happen at any time. And yet when you get to Jesus, we see the life of Jesus. And we get to this point in the life of Jesus where Jesus goes to the garden of Gethsemane. Like, hey, garden. I remember the garden. I just read about the garden. And in the Garden of Eden, what was he doing? I mean, at the, at the Garden of Gethsemane. He starts to pray to the Father, right, to take this cup from him, and, and drops of blood began to fall from his head. He is literally experiencing the curse. What was the curse? What did we just read? Thorns and thistles, and by the sweat of your brow, and Jesus is dropping that, he is experiencing the curse, and he's gonna have thorns on his head. He is taking on the full weight of the curse of all humanity on himself at the cross. And even as he's laboring over this in prayer, but in dying, he swallowed up death. Isn't that what 1 Corinthians tells us? The great reversal has happened again. By death and dying slew. There's this great hymn called I Hear the Accuser Roar. I'm gonna read the last couple of verses of this great hymn. He says about Jesus, that his be the victor's name who fought our fight alone. Triumphant saints no honors claim. Their conquest was his own. By weakness and defeat, he won the meat and crown. Trod all our foes beneath his feet by being trodden down. He hell and hell laid low, made sin, he sin or threw. Bowed to the grave, destroyed at death. 
destroyed it so, and death by dying slew. Bless, bless the conqueror slain, slain is his victory, who lived, who died, who lives again, for thee, his church, for thee. Let me ask you a question. Who worked better than anybody else and loved their neighbor better than anybody? Sunday school answer? Jesus. His perfect work brings about our salvation. And now we're giving a promise that I'll end the service with that your work now is not in vain from 1 Corinthians because of the resurrection. It won't be forgotten. There is a work now that arises out of us that arises out of a deep rest because you're not working for your salvation. You receive it. It's a gift. When we understand the gospel, our perspective on work changes because we're no longer trying to find our identity through our work and making it our salvation. You're not earning yourself work. You work then in response now to what Jesus has done for you. And so when we're overworking, we're trying to get life and value and work, we're trying to do something that work could never deliver. And, and David Zal in his book, Seculosity, he says, when work becomes the primary arbiter of identity, purpose, worth, and community in our lives, it has ceased to function as employment and began to function as a religion. Or at least we've made it responsible for providing the very things from which we used to look to God. And so when we have that struggle, you see it. I mean, you see the difference you remember from Chariots of Fire and Harold Abrams and, and he's running that 100-yard dash and he says, I'm 24 years old, I'm forever in pursuit, I have 10 seconds to prove my existence. I've never known cont contentment, I don't even know what I'm chasing. 10 seconds to prove your existence and that's a lonely 10 seconds, you see. So we put work in its proper place. We're in Babylon Everybody speaks Babel. They're there for, for themselves, and yet we're there to help others. And so how do we do that? Well, working is an expression of love, as we said, and what you want to do with your work is focus on where you are a gift to others. It's called competency. Let me give you an example. Yesterday, I thought that I was going to take dominion. I was going to try this out. Subdue the earth, take charge. We have lived, we've cut the cord on cable, and we have hardly any TV channels, but I was going to extend our ability to watch TV to at least get channel seven, at least get channel nine by raising the antenna on the roof. Easy project. I got some extra coaxial cable that I found in our bedroom that's been hiding behind my, uh, my shelf there, and so I got this thing, and I, well, the first thing I had to do was I had to take the cable off from behind our TV. And that thing was stuck, and I couldn't get the coaxial cable off. So I said, well, I'm going to get me a, a wrench. I'll get that thing off. And I start working on it, and I broke the, the, I broke the very latch to the TV, and the whole thing came out. <laughs> Here I am trying. I'm going to subdue the earth. I'm going to take dominion. I mean, I am going to do something productive. And now I have no TV. <laughs> so I went downstairs, and I said to Haddon, I need help. You got to help me. And so Haddon came up and he took the whole TV apart. 
he got out a siren and he, and he said, out of the room. I don't want any dogs, no fan, and I don't want a helicopter dad overwatching me, basically. And so I left, shut the door. I came back in and the TV was back in the room and on. He soldered it and fixed the whole TV. And I said, that is loving your neighbor. I, that's how you screw it up is, is get me to, to, to you know, try to you know, show you what subduing is. I was not competent, but he was. And I said, you're gifted with your hands in a way that I am not. Now, I did get the extension up on the roof. And we did get, we got channel seven and nine now. So we're, we're in a little better shape. And Kim is relieved because I was not in good shape when I told her the TV was done. You know, like, not good. So that's the idea here is that you want to work in areas where you are competent, where has God gifted you, where you can be a real blessing to others. That's where you want to find. Where is there a fire in your belly where you can find this place where you can be a great blessing to others? And sometimes, we have to be honest, our ability and affinity and opportunity doesn't always wonderfully line up. We live in a, in a fallen world, and so sometimes your work is, is say, man, I'd love to do that, but I just can't find a job that pays me to do that. And sometimes that's part of where we live in this, in this fallen world. But we do want to try to choose a calling or an employment where we can do the most, bring most glory to God, but also the most service to others, and also where we can sin the least. And if you can find that environment, great. And then lastly, in thinking about glory in the new heavens and new earth. Some of you may have heard of the story of the leaf by niggle by Tolkien. Has anybody ever read the leaf by niggle? It's a, it's a short story. And in this, in this short story that Tolkien writes, and I think Tolkien's writing about his life, because if you know the story of Tolkien, he worked forever on this Lord of the Rings. He created a whole language for it, and he just worked years and years and years and saw very little fruit of his labors. Meanwhile, C.S. Lewis's books are selling like hotcakes, and Tolkien's over there experiencing very little, okay? And so he wrote this short story of A Leaf by Niggle, and the idea is he's got this credible painting that he's working on, and he's been working and working and working on this painting, and it's a tree, and a, but all he completes is a leaf, and he dies. But when he dies, as he goes to heaven, he sees the tree that he'd been working on his whole life. And he knew that his work wasn't in vain. And the idea is this. As you are bringing God's kingdom to bear in your various areas of work, so often it's frustrating. It's incomplete. You're seeing just little tiny snippets of what it could be. But, it's, but you're doing the right thing. And someday when we get on the other side, we're going to see the fullness of what complete work would have looked like. We're, there's going to be this ex experience that the, the whole Ecclesiastes experience of, of futility and frustration will be gone. Let me close by reading this. This is where in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul echoes back to Ecclesiastes. Listen to this. He says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. There's the word. 
That's the Ecclesiastes word of emptiness and, and meaninglessness. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because him, of him who subjected it in a hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. But we press on and work while we wait. Let's pray. Father, may we find deep satisfaction in our work. And most of all, may we rest in your work done for us. And we praise you and thank you for salvation as a gift. Thank you that we do not have to work for it, but rest in it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.